My name is Andrea Stroud, the Research Program Manager for Supply Chain Management here at APQC. I'll be the facilitator for today's podcast. With me on the phone today, I have Kate Vitasic of Vested Way. She is an international authority for award-winning research and vested business model for highly collaborative relationships. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On August 27th, APQC hosted a webinar called Sourcing Business Models, where our speaker, Kate, discussed the University of Tennessee's work on sourcing business models and shared insights from her soon-to-be-released book, Strategic Sourcing in the New Economy, Harnessing the Potential of Sourcing Business Models in Modern Procurement. The webinar was well-registered and well-attended, and there were so many questions that we didn't have enough time to answer all of them that attendees had asked. Today we're going to cover some of those questions that we did not have time to answer during the webinar. So I will go ahead and get started. Kate, please feel free to answer these questions as you'd like. Kate, uh, I'll get started. In your recent presentation, you mentioned that the University of Tennessee researchers are making an open source business model mapping toolkit available to help organizations map each of their spin categories to determine the most appropriate sourcing business model. How does the toolkit apply to government procurement? Well, that's a great question because a lot of times, um, and by the way, the Air Force actually funded all of our original research. So it was, uh, was actually stems from um, a government request to say, how can we think about sourcing better? Um, and most of the time I see government people will think of themselves differently. Well, that works in the private sector, but it won't work in government sector. And, and that's really a myth. Um, and if you look at the toolkit, you'll see that it's based on 25 attributes, environmental business type attributes. And those attributes are the same in private sector as they would be in government sector. So let's say that you have a facilities management. Right? So Procter & Gamble is one of our case studies in, in one of our books, and they outsource facilities management and real estate. And they have dining services and custodial and building maintenance. Well, government has the same things too. right? And so it, it's not really that they're different. It's the environment that you're dealing in that is different. And so what we've done is mapped out these 25 different environmental factors uh, and it helps you determine the most appropriate relational contracting model and the most important economic model because your sourcing business model is made up of the combination of the two of them. For example, if you want, if your business environment demands outcomes, it's very strategic in nature, it, you know, I don't just want to buy a janitor, I need to look at um, you know, how can I use my facilities and real estate portfolio more strategically? Or in Microsoft's case, they didn't want accounting. They wanted transformation of back office procure to pay. So they were buying outcomes, not outputs or inputs. So when your environment demands outcomes and a relational contract, that's going to mean that you're going to need a vested sourcing business model. If I am buying light bulbs, and my environment says there's a thousand suppliers that can deal with that, right? I would probably map into a basic provider model. So you answer these questions on the toolkit, and it will tell you which sourcing business model is the most appropriate. And those factors, they're exactly the same for government as it is for the private sector. 
a good point. And what is the brand risk exposure as a company moves towards a vested relationship? Well, actually, um, that's I love this question too because people who experience or are nervous about their brand risk is one reason why they move towards a vested relationship. On the business model mapping toolkit, uh, that's actually one of the criteria. If I, if I outsource, will I have exposure to my brand? And you want to actually create more strategic relationships when your brand is exposed. Why would you want to have an arm's length adversarial supplier relationship if your brand is at risk? Right? Think about supply chain outsourcing. And the more important that your brand could be exposed if you don't get your product to market on time, the more you want to actually have a strategic type relationship. Think about when the Harry Potter books were released, right? And those needed to be in all the bookstores at the same time because one bookstore couldn't have an advantage over the other. Well, you're going to have a more strategic relationship with that, with that particular supplier for that supply chain event than you would if I'm just shipping, you know, something, ordering something off of Amazon and it doesn't matter if it got here today or tomorrow. So the more important that your brand is, the more risk to your brand, the more you want to move up the sourcing continuum. That makes perfect sense when you think about it. Why treat your, you know, why, why would you want to put yourself at risk in an adversarial arm's length transaction-based relationship when your brand is at risk? That's actually making it more risky. Absolutely. And does the vested model break down with offshoring with language and travel barriers? Um, you know, actually, you go back to those environmental factors, and offshoring doesn't uh, – offshoring is a question that doesn't relate to your business model. So you can have a vested relationship that's offshore or a vested relationship that's onshore that's, or nearshore. So vested is really the model. Performance-based agreements are the model. Um, offshoring is a decision that you would make in where you want to locate that relationship. So it really, it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. They, it, it, you know, it, it really has nothing to do with the sourcing business model. It would have everything to do with the total cost of ownership. Should I be in China or should I be in Mexico? That's a math problem. It has nothing to do with the sourcing business model. Have you found that it's been hard to, to get organizations to kind of communicate the model or the changes that they want to happen or the relationships with their suppliers when there is that difference of, of language and, 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 the, and the, as, as a language barrier? Absolutely, and I think you look at um, say, large-scale outsourcing BPO agreements or IT agreements where there's a large offshore component, um, they need to consciously look at developing those relationships and bonds with those suppliers so that you do have a better relationship and you do have tighter alignment towards culture and compatibility. Um, as you move along that sourcing continuum, you know, from a transactional to a performance-based or a vested type of a relationship, 
you are consciously developing strategic relationships with those suppliers to drive value for your organization. And that means consciously creating behaviors that are going to improve your relationship and your compatibility and trust levels with those suppliers. So I've seen, for example, a re really good BPO service uh, customer, people that are, are outsourcing BPO to say India, they will consciously um, go to India every quarter. They'll actually bring their brand, you know, say it's Starbucks or it's Nike. I'm just using those as an example. They'll take them, you know, Nike jerseys and different things saying, hey, you know, these are our products, these are our services. Become part of us. They become an extension of the firm. So you, you are wanting that supplier to really act on your behalf and create value for you. You want them to be excited to create it, that, that, that they are creating a competitive differentiation for you. They're not just there answering the phone for, for their competitors as well as you, right? It's not transactional. Can you answer the phone? But how can you answer the phone and it create a competitive advantage for me? So you want to consciously build that bond with your supplier to, draw, to improve that relationship. And that's why they're called relational contracts. And there's all kinds of contracting mechanisms that you need to actually bake into the contract and into the relationship and the relationship governance to build that bond. Um, and we're not doing that today. You know, we say strategic supplier, and then you look at the contracts and the sourcing business models, and we treat you like an arm's length. And, and no wonder that the supplier isn't driving innovation because they're just like every, anybody else. They're treating you, the customer, the same they would treat everyone else because you bought a commodity. You bought a commodity, you're going to get a commodity. You buy a strategic partnership with a conscious decision to create value, you're going to exponentially increase your odds at getting that innovation that you want. I think you bring up interesting points, especially when you're discussing the, the transactional versus the non-transactional relationships. Um, just when you think about using the vested model, can you speak to how you would treat input-based relationships that aren't transactional? Well, um, you know, that's, I, I think the heart of why I think people get confused in sourcing is because input-based relationships are transactional, right? So I think about my, my continuum that I, that I shared on the webinar, right? So on the left-hand side of that continuum are these transactional relationships. They are based on input. How many hours are you doing? How many units are you doing? How many calls are you answering? And I'm going to pay you on this transactional type model, economic model. As I move across the continuum, I move to output-based and outcome-based economic models. So I start to shift to a more strategic nature. So an outcome is boundary spawning. Um, it is cross-functional, cross-silos. So to use an example from one of our books, Procter & Gamble and Jones Lang LaSalle, they, they said, I don't want Jones Lang LaSalle, I don't want you to just take care of the buildings. I could buy a janitor. Like anyone could show up and be a janitor. I want you to take charge of the buildings. I want you to lower my cost structure and improve my service levels. I want you to drive innovation in how I manage my portfolio. Right? So we're, we're upping the stakes. We're not just buying and transacting. That's where we get the word transactional. 
here's a dollar, here's a unit of service. Here's $15, here's a janitor. So when we, when we buy things in a transactional manner and we're looking at those inputs, how many units, how many hours, how many calls, you're going to get more of a commodity type response from your supplier. I buy a transaction in a commodity, I'm gonna get a transaction in commodity. So I have to move and begin to ask as a buyer, how do I buy outputs, guaranteed service levels, um, cost reduction initiatives, right? Hey supplier, help me drive down my cost structure, right? And as I move further up the continuum, I shift to outcomes. Now an outcome is boundary spanning. You can't get there without your partner. So the supplier can't just be held accountable and said, I'm gonna contract with you, for example, in the construction industry, these guaranteed maximum price contracts. And all you have all the risk. Think about, um, I love one of our case studies is the state of Minnesota, the I-35 bridge rebuild. And most people remember the I-35 bridge because it's the one that fell down in Minneapolis, remember? It had the very catastrophic, fell down just at rush hour one day. And they really treated that as an, as an um, outcome-based model. And you look at the economics, what if there were dinosaur bones under the bridge, right? Do you think you can hold the supplier accountable for a guaranteed price if they start to get in and dig and find something that's environmentally sensitive? They're not gonna be able to hit their timeline. They're not gonna be able to hit your cost. So why are we falsely holding a supplier accountable for something that is out of their control? It's an outcome, right? It's bigger than both of us. So I like to use an analogy when I think about outcomes as going to Mount Everest. So you can't get to the top of Mount Everest without your Serpa. So your supplier's your Serpa, you're the mountain climber, and you have to get there together. And you know what? Sometimes it snows on Mount Everest. So you may have the best laid path, but you may have to stop and pause for the day. Or sometimes there's an earthquake on Mount Everest and the whole mission has to be scrapped. So you're in it together. We win together, we lose together. You know, and, and you're, you're, you're really looking to seek something far bigger than what either one of you could do. You can only get that business outcome together. And that's why we outsource in the first place, isn't it? Because we don't have the core competency. I don't want to just buy a janitor. I want, I, I want to go to, to CBRE or ISS or Jones Lang LaSalle uh, or Cushman and Wakefield because they're the experts in what they're doing. I want their expertise. If I just wanted to show up and be a janitor, that's a transactional-based deal, right? So it's, it's how your mindset and, and, and how you actually approach the buying process. And all too often, we say strategic supplier, and then we buy a commodity. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we often see is that we have um, different organizations who really want to be aligned with their suppliers. Um, but one of the things that happens is they, that they, they don't know all of the output um, to get vested around. Um, you mentioned your outputs and your, and, and your outcomes, but they don't know what all of those outputs are. And that's kind of problematic for some organizations. I would agree with that. That's actually the majority of our work is spent on that exact question. I mean, and that was really where the Air Force funded our research because buyers, they're not the expert in what they buy. If they are, then they're buying, buy a transaction. So if I'm the world's expert and I can define 
with high degree of specificity exactly what I want, then more power to you, go use the market, use competition to get what you want. But more often than not, we outsource and we use a supplier because we're not the expert. So when we're not the expert, we actually have to build more strategic relationships with these suppliers. So the supplier, it enables them to bring their expertise. It's kind of like a catch-22, right? We're not the world's best, so we outsource. I call it the outsourcing paradox. We outsource to the experts, and then we tell them how to do the work. It's insane. If we are the world's best, you can tell them and then go buy a transaction. I want your unit of service, or I want this, you know, this um, spec, because I am the world's best, and this is my spec. But if we're not the world's best, you have to now step back and say, Help, here's the output I want, here's the outcome I'm trying to reach. Let's work collaboratively to get there. Absolutely. You know, Kate, I'm curious, when do you find most organizations really hit that point um, or, or what stage do organizations decide if a relationship with a supplier should be more strategic? When do they really see when um, or realize that need um, for becoming more strategic? Um, great question, and I think that they don't consciously, most organizations in my opinion anyway, don't consciously step back and say, gosh, I've been working with a supplier for eight years now. Maybe it's time to be more strategic. Um, and that's one of the things we want to encourage people to do is take the time and look at each of their spin categories and how they're working with suppliers and, and, and really say, what's it mean to be strategic? You know, if I go back to the Krajic model, and he teaches everyone for the last 30 years, you know, we've adopted the, the Krajic matrix, and it says if you're in the strategic bucket, your job is to try to commoditize and, and um, break down the power. So somehow being strategic has meant that the supplier, you're getting lock-in from the supplier. That's a, a word that we often hear in IT outsourcing. Oh, Gotta, gotta move to a multi-source model because I'm getting locked in and the supplier has too much power. And so why wouldn't you wanna harness that power instead of break that power down and commoditize it and make it overly competitive? So using our power to create something better and newer um, in a more strategic way. So we're really encouraging people, you know, if your project matrix says strategic, let's step back go through a business model mapping exercise, look at the environmental factors, and then question how, how are we actually approaching the nature of this relationship with regards to the business model? And again, that business model, the sourcing business model is made up of the relational contracting model. You know, should it be transactional contract or a relational contract? And, and the economic model. Should it be based on transactions, outputs, or outcomes? And so when you begin to look at those factors and you go, wow, this really should be outcome-based. Wow, this really should be a, relation, a strategic relationship. You know, I want my supplier to be a, an extension of me. Then you have to follow the best methodology. If it is an output-based, you would follow a performance-based structure. And, and, and we really try to teach, as educators at the University of Tennessee, that's what we're trying to teach people, is to think differently um, and to take a step back and really make sure that they are aligning their intent with their actions. 
because I see there's a big misalignment. We say strategic supplier and then go look at your contract. You did not buy a strategic supplier. You say you want outcomes, go look at your contract, and you bought, in, you bought inputs, right? You bought transactions. So I, I think people just don't realize that they say one thing and do something else. And that's what we're trying to is, is point that, shine that really shiny light on and go, guys, you're, you really think about and architect, and I love that word architect, architect your sourcing um, initiatives, consciously architect them to build and create the most value that you can with suppliers. And some, you won't be able to create any value with. They're a pen supplier. You know, no big deal. They are approved or a basic supplier. Who cares? But for those that are more strategic, don't say one thing and do something different. Um, and then, so for larger organizations operating globally, should the procurement be a controlled organization or be a decentralized one, do you think? Oh, you know, that has nothing to do with sourcing business models, really, but I do have an opinion about that. And, and actually, APQC, you guys have written a really good paper on that showing that as you move to more centralized um, um, procurement uh, methods, you create a lot of cost savings and efficiencies. So I'm a big fan of the centralization. However, a lot of people think that everything has to move to one location. It's like you know, a, a centralized location. And what I am seeing is center-led, right? So I can, I can have centralized processes, but the people can actually reside in different places and in the business unit. So more of a matrix organization. But I do think centralization brings a lot of benefits because you can now start to look at things more holistically, um, identify um, various processes and gaps. When Microsoft outsourced their back office procure to pay, their, their financial um, management to Accenture, they had um, 95 subsidiaries. Well, they had 95 different processes. And that's one of the things that they did was as they brought on and outsourced each of the locations, you know, through their initiative, they centralized that. Because, you know, even if you can only centralize 80% of the processes, <clears throat> you are becoming more efficient. So I tell people it doesn't have to be one centralized process or one way, but if you can get 80% standardized processes, for your business units, or 80%, you know, uh, streamline efficiencies, you're going to get better. So I like centralization. It has nothing to do with your sourcing business model. Um, I, I will say one thing here, though. One of our sourcing business models, if you look to the far right of the sourcing continuum, is shared, is shared services, right? So shared services is a sourcing business model that um, because – you are, in essence, outsourcing to yourself. I'm no longer self-performing in my business unit or in my country. I'm outsourcing to myself as a centralized organization. Um, so shared services is absolutely a viable approach to think how you would structure your relationship with your supplier, and your supplier could be yourself. Absolutely. And just to kind of touch on a point, because APQC has done quite a bit of research on centralized and decentralized. And then I know you also mentioned standardization, which is actually different from centralization. Um, mm -hmm. 
like that gap between central and decentral um, decentralization has been closing those differences that we've been seeing, but the standardization is what's most important. So whether an organization is centralized or decentralized is not as significant, but whether or not the organizations actually have standardized processes is what's important. Yeah, and that's where I use that word center-led, right? So um, we want to be smart about our processes, and I don't care if you have a manager in Poland and a manager in Brazil and a manager in Salt Lake City, right? Um, the efficiencies come from the standardization. Now, I do encourage people not to over-standardize because then you have people, the business units often will get frustrated and go around. So I, I use an analogy in our book of the print center for a university, right? So we at the university have a centra centralized print center because it's much more efficient and cost-effective for us to take our printing to this print center if we have more than a few pages. Um, but if their service levels are five days, I get frustrated as a professor and I go, no way, I'm going to go wait five days. And I go around and I'll take it to my local FedEx office center, right? Because I was a poor planner, but I perceived the service levels are too bad. So as it, when we centralize, we have to think like a supplier. And that's why I like the shared services philosophy, because think like a supplier. Um, and so would a supplier only offer one service level? Right, And so if you're not meeting your customers' needs, the customers, your internal customers, will defect and go outside. And that takes away all the leverage that you have from the efficiencies. So we do look at in the continuum with regards to shared services as being a sourcing business model. Um, and the reason why you would do a shared services was to get some of that streamlining of your processes. But think like a supplier. My number one advice on shared services and centralization, think like a supplier. Because if you're not service-oriented to your business users, to the users of your business, they will defect. And there's lots of statistics out on that that show that the more I standardize, the more business units defect. So think about it as being a good supplier who can offer multiple solutions but still streamline. And how do we bring the legal and finance functions into creating uh, relational contracts? Oh, I love it. That's a great question. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. You know, you don't have – here's the way businesses work. Not all of them, but the business people craft this really good deal. They're out to dinner, and they have a back of the napkin, and, oh, it's a great deal. They shake hands, and then it goes through procurement, right? And then the procurement people go and go, oh, how do I write that contract? And then it goes to legal. So it just we find the intent of what the business people want to do gets lost with each layer. And so, oh, well, we, ha we, we can't do that. I know that supplier is really innovative. We need a competitive bid. And I'm not saying competitive bid is bad. Actually, that's opposite. A lot of people go, oh, you don't like competition. I, I think we have to use competition to drive innovation, and comp the way that people use competition drives out innovation because they're trying to commoditize. So we create, on these more strategic relationships, right, we actually create core teams that include legal and procurement and the business units. And we get alignment on what it is the buyer's buying. So that way it doesn't go, well, here's what the business wants, and here's what procurement said, and then here's what legal wrote up. 
right? You've, you've seen that, you know, the telephone game where you start with one thing and end another. another. So we want to avoid that, and we want everybody to come up front and say, what is it we're buying? Let's be really, really clear, including the supplier, because we want those suppliers to really understand what they're bidding on instead of just a commodity. So we think that the more that we commoditize, it's clear with the supplier, and that is true but we just lost our innovation because we bought a commodity. So you have to bring the collaboration and the innovation into the procurement process. We use tools and suggest tools like a request for proposed solution, not a request for proposal, because a request for proposal says, here's what I want, tell me my price, right? I don't want just the price, I want a solution. So now as a procurement professional, I have to learn how to compare apples to oranges. I have to use best value processes and techniques because I'm buying value, I'm buying innovation. And my legal department needs to learn how to write those relational contracts, which are very, very different. Um, so, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you're, you're killing me because I want my standard contract form. Just use my standard contract form. I'm like, you know, you can use all your standard contract forms you want for the lower end of the continuum. Let's say you have 10,000 suppliers probably average for most, most big companies probably have more than 10,000 suppliers, right? So that's not uncommon to have uh, thousands of suppliers. So on the lower end of the continuum, you're approved and you're, you're uh, basic and you're preferred. You've got the majority of your suppliers. Think of almost like a funnel. All day long, use your standard contract template. But on those suppliers in your funnel that really are strategic and we need to use these relational contracts, I have to be able to throw away my standard contract template because I'm not buying an apple to an apple to an apple. And I'm really looking at a solution. The governance structure is different from one supplier and one solution to another solution. So I can't have a standard cookie cutter supplier relationship management process that I'm just going to like, you know, here it is. This is the way I work. So let go on those strategic relationships, really create what Oliver Williamson, Nobel Prize winning economist says is a flexible framework. Create a flexible framework. Yes, it needs to be legally sound, and but put in those relational dynamics and those relational components into the contracts. When I look at contracts as part of our research, you know, it's all about the statement of work and the price, and they leave off all the relational components. We're not writing relational contracts today, and we need to begin doing that for our strategic suppliers. Those contracts are different animals, and they need a different way to think about them. And if an organization has a supplier that is not performing well, and the supplier is a single supplier in the market, what would be a good approach towards an organization dealing with this? <laughs> well. So I, I want to go back to the business model mapping tool, right? So if you only have one supplier in the market that can do what you want, I'm sorry, they're not a commodity. They're not a basic and approved or even a preferred supplier because you don't have choice. You only have one. So that means you're forced to move up the sourcing continuum to hold that, account that supplier accountable for outcomes or outputs. So I would say at a minimum, a single source supplier, you need to be thinking about a minimum of a performance-based agreement. And if it's you're, you're nervous about them, then because they're not performing, right, so you put the, the performance-based criteria 
on that so it drives their accountability. And so put in the relational components of that contract and the governance structure, why isn't the supplier performing? Um, when we study outsourcing relationships, you know, everybody thinks the supplier's fault, right? And, and when we start to look at it and we, we dissect these relationships, I would say on average 70% of the issues are buyer-led. And so suppliers don't sign up to take this customer, even a sole source one, because if they're bad, other suppliers will come in the market and take away their market share. So they don't, you know, they don't sign up to be bad on purpose. There's usually reasons why they're bad. And all too often the reasons are the, the supplier's not clear. What is it you're trying to buy? You bought a commodity, but you wanted this. You bought this spec, but we had changes, right? And so when we start to look at why the supplier's failing, it's scary, but on average 70% of the issues are actually buyer-led. I know buyers don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. They think it's the supplier because the supplier is the one with the performance. But when you look at the root cause, what's the inputs to the supplier? The inputs are failing, which is causing the supplier to fail. Absolutely. And Kate, I mean, you shared quite a bit of um, really exciting information, stuff that our members are really going to value and find interest in. I'm wondering if you have any additional um, best practices, especially um, for supplier performance management that you could share with us? Um, you know, there's a lot written around supplier um, performance management. Y'all are the, you know, real leaders in, in that, which is good. Um, one thing that we see as you move up the sourcing continuum, you have to change the way that you measure suppliers because if I'm measuring inputs and activities, that's a very different metric than an output, than an outcome. And so really thinking about linking how you measure to the sourcing business model. One very common mistake, I would say, is, is something we call measurement minutia. So in these more strategic relationships, we say we want outcomes, and then when you look at their scorecard, it's all about inputs and activities. So I'm measuring all these inputs, and I forget to measure the, output, the outcomes, right? So I go back to my Mount Everest analogy. I want to go to Mount Everest, right? You're my Sherpa. This is a strategic thing, right? Very strategic. It's hard. We want innovation. We're, we're coming up with something bigger than we are. Yet then my scorecard tells how many pounds did you pack today and how many footprints, how many steps did you take? We're missing the boat, right? So we have to scale our measures to the intent of the relationship. And in more strategic relationships, um, so a, a preferred, a transactional type contract, such as a, a, a um, preferred supplier or approved supplier, is going to measure these activities or inputs. Um, as I move to a performance-based relationship, I'm not only going to measure the operational success, but I'm going to start to measure the relational success. And then as I move to a vested agreement, I'm measuring operational, relational, and innovation success. Because the whole intent of a vested relationship is to drive innovation and transformation, to achieve these outcomes that I can't normally get without investments. So I really change the lens at how I, I work um, and measure. 
far too many companies are just measuring the operational aspect, mm -hmm. and they get what I call a watermelon scorecard. It's green on the outside and red on the inside. And that's because, that's because they're not measuring the relationship and they're not measuring the innovation of that, um, of, of, that is being produced because of that strategic partnership. Now, if I don't want innovation, then I'm down on the other end of the continuum. I've just bought a approved or preferred supplier because I don't really want innovation. I don't have to measure it because I'm not buying it. You mentioned um, you know, some aspects of organizations you know, not measuring um, certain certain things or not measuring enough. Have you seen where organizations are actually measuring so many things that it's overwhelming? Like they haven't really chosen the true yeah. performance indicators for themselves, but they just have all these measures, but not really the key things that they really need to be looking at, and it's overwhelming. Yeah, I I call that measurement minutia. It's actually a disease um, in in uh, procurement because just because we can measure something doesn't mean that we should. Um, and so I encourage um, less is more. Um, and if you're achieving your measures, then you earn the right to add more. But why would you try to measure 100 things when you've got three important things that aren't going right? I would focus on those three and do really, really good root cause analysis. So get your process of measurement down before you start adding more measures. So focus on what matters. Yeah, focusing on what matters. So we, we use a tool in um, people who come to our classes uh, and we teach how to structure and architect these deals. We use a tool called the Requirements Roadmap and it actually helps people articulate what those requirements are. So you, you say you want an um, a transactional contract. What are those transactions? And then you align the metrics and the money to that. Um, you say you want an outcome-based relationship. What is that? What are those outcomes? So it, it's, it, if I'm going to Mount Everest, it's your roadmap to get there. You know, if I'm going to Dallas, Texas, or Houston, Texas, y'all are in Houston, it's your roadmap to get there. Um, and so you don't just say you're going someplace. We actually have a roadmap to get there. But far too often, we you know, we, we just go buy something and then we measure things simply because we can instead of our progress. You know, I want to know the progress. What's base camp? What is success? You know, how do we know we got the base camp? How do I know I got to the second camp? You know, what success when I, what does success look like when I get to Mount Everest? If I am truly buying innovation, what's that look like? So we're not taking the time to step back and really architect these more strategic relationships. We're, they're going through a buying process instead of an architecting process. You know, if I'm buying pans, I can buy all day long. Run them through your P card, your catalog. You know, heck yeah, they should go through Ariba. You got your 10,000 suppliers, they all should funnel through that. But these strategic suppliers, okay. How can a supplier develop innovation if they have 150 characters that has to fit in their, your little template? You're not going to get a good solution. No, absolutely, absolutely. And Kate, APTC, and 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 I am also very excited about the release of your new book, Strategic Sourcing in the New Economy, that's coming out uh, on October 27th. And uh, I've actually already pre-ordered mine on Amazon, so I'm looking forward to that. 
Um, will your new book sum up any of the information that was in your uh, first five books? or? You know, that's a good question. Um, the answer is really no. There is one chapter in there that talks about vested relationships. So I have five books on vested. So kind of the why, the what, the who. For example, I've got a whole case study book, and I profile in that, the Procter & Gamble case study. So there is one chapter on vested. There's a chapter, basically, we cover each of the sourcing business models. And so that chapter on vested itself um, would be a very slim snapshot of uh, a summary of the other books that I have on vested. Um, and so that would be some overlap, but the rest is not. It really takes the concept uh, of, you know, everyone knows uh, how we've done so much work in the area of vested relationships. It steps back from a procurement executive's lens and a procurement professional's lens and said, all right, so Kate, I hear you about vested, but not all my suppliers are vested. And I say, you're absolutely right. You've got 10,000 suppliers and they're not all vested, but let's start to use the same logic and architectural philosophies that we use in vested to craft some of these lesser strategic relationships those that might be performance-based, those that might be preferred or approved. And so it takes the rigor that we've done in crafting highly strategic vested relationships and, and, and uses that logic across the entire sourcing continuum. And we also had some really, really good research. For example, um, our work is based on relational contracting and just we just did massive amounts of work in that area. And really taking say, you know, relational contracts can apply for preferred um, performance-based and vested relationships. So why aren't we taking that goodness and the research we've done there and teaching people how to apply those in these other types of a little bit lesser strategic um, deals? Because not everything is vested. You know, I got 10,000 suppliers. I may have 10 that should be vested. I probably have 100 that should be performance-based. I probably have 1,000 that should be preferred and the rest are on the other end of the continuum, right? I may have two or three that I want to actually develop a joint venture with or a more strategic, you know, a, um, subsidiary agreement, for example, to get distribution in countries that I'm not there. Because sometimes we have to. For example, in, in Dubai, you want to be in Dubai, sorry, you've got to have some kind of a economic um, an equity partnership because you're not allowed to be in Dubai without an equity partnership. It's the law. So I need supplies and I, I need someone in Dubai to manage my distribution. Well, we're not going through a competitive bid process for a preferred supplier for that. Um, it's a different, different model. And so it helps people really step back and think holistically instead of, I've got all these spin categories, let's run them through my two by two, or even the, the AT Carney 64 chessboard, right? Um, it really, I think, is a more strategic view of procurement to make people think. All right. Well, that concludes the podcast for today. I really appreciate Kate for joining. If anyone has any questions that were not answered on either the webinar or today's podcast, you can reach me by email at astroud at apqc.org. You can listen to the recording of the webinar by visiting apqc.org. The recording along with the slides live in APQC's knowledge base. Thanks again, Kate. Look for more information on upcoming webinars and content in your inbox soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening.